Amen. You can have a seat. It's good to see you, Mars Hill, this morning. Glad that you're here. Uh, before we get into our text, I want to let you know about an event coming up. Uh, one of our retreats, we do retreats for a number of different purposes and reasons and different times of the year. And one of the retreats that's coming up, November 10th and 11th, is our marriage retreat. And I know what some of you are thinking. You have perfect marriages and no problems. And you don't need a marriage retreat. Uh, but you also drive cars that don't have major problems because you do regular maintenance checks on your cars. And so I just want to encourage you to consider this retreat as a maintenance checkup on your marriage. It's helpful for those reasons. There are plenty of other people in the room that are struggling in silence in their marriage. And you think you're the only one. The enemy would love to tempt us to those two directions. We're perfect. We've got no problems. We're okay. And the other is, we're the only ones we've never, who've ever struggled with this. We're the only marriage like this. And the gospel tells us that neither of those things are true. It balances us. It provides us humility, and it also provides us hope. And a marriage retreat like this, Jesus regularly called his disciples to come away with him to desolate places, to silent places, to retreat, to rejuvenate, to refresh. And on a retreat like this, you're going to hear from other married couples that are struggling, and you're going to find out you're not the only one. And you're also going to be humbled because you're going to see, oh, I actually do have some, some cracks, some flaws that I need to address. And so we're going to go through some great material, Tim Keller's Meaning of Marriage. We're not going to go through all of it, just a few videos and a few uh, of the lessons in it. And then we're also going to hear from other married couples that will share their stories. Uh, and you, it just, it'll be a time for you to spend some time with your spouse. And that may, this may be the one time a year you get to do that if you have kids. Uh, and so this is just a good chance to, uh, to do a little checkup. And so I just want to encourage you to consider that. November 10th and 12th, you can sign up. I think it's available online right now. Joe will share a little bit more of those details a little bit later. We're in Acts chapter 4 this morning. We're going to be in verses 23 to 31. Uh, and if you're a guest with us, we're studying through the book of Acts. And if you haven't been here, you've been in and out. Just a little recap in chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John have healed a man born lame, lame from birth. Forty years, he could not walk. He sat outside the temple begging, asking for alms. And Peter and John looked at him and said, Silver and gold we don't have, but what we do have we give to you. We give it freely in the name of Jesus. Rise in the name of Jesus. Stand up and walk. And he's healed. And immediately the religious leaders question what has happened here. Who, by whose name, by whose authority, by, by what power are you doing this? Have you done this? And Peter and John don't hold back. They're not shy about it. They share openly. It's by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you today, that he's been healed, that he is whole. It's by Jesus that this has happened. They don't, they don't hide it. And it says in the text that the, the religious leaders are shocked they're astonished by the boldness of Peter and John. We're going to say a little bit more what that word means this morning, boldness, but they're shocked by that. And they say, it's clear and evident these men have been with Jesus. They speak just like he did, with the same authority and the same clarity and the same freedom. That's how they're speaking to us. These men who were uneducated common men, it doesn't mean illiterate, they couldn't read, it means they just didn't go through the formal trainings the formal theological religious trainings that the religious leaders did, and they're shocked. How do they know these things, quoting from the Old Testament as prevalently as they do? How do they know this? How, how can they stand here and be so bold and so brave and so confident with what they know and what they say to us? And then what happens is what we're seeing in our text this morning. They're threatened, the religious leaders threaten Peter and John to speak no more in this name. They dismiss them and they say, do not speak in this name again, Jesus' name. And now we come to the text. In verse 23 down to 31, and what do the disciples do? They immediately return to their friends, it says, and report all that has happened and all that was said to them. And they immediately pray. And their prayer is so powerful. That's an understatement. God shakes the earth in this prayer, literally. Their, their prayer is so powerful, it's so instructive, it's so encouraging, and it actually is so convicting, and we need to learn so much from it this morning. The first thing they say is, is sovereign Lord. They acknowledge the greatness of God and their finiteness, their smallness. You are great and we are small. 
There's so much to be gleaned from that. And then they turn and they ask God to give them the words to continue to speak boldly, confidently, with conviction. So give us the words, but boldness, we'll see, also means freedom. The freedom, the freedom from the approval of man, the freedom from achievement, the freedom from success, the freedom from all the idols we could be entangled by. Give us freedom to speak freely about the name. And while we speak, they ask him to act. You act, God. You save. You rescue. You do what you do. You come to the rescue. Heal and save and do it by signs and wonders. And what does God do? He does it. He answers. He hears their prayer and he answers in this text. So those are our three things that we're going to see this morning. Sovereign Lord, give us grace, the, the words, the boldness to speak, and you act. Let's read our text this morning, and then we'll look at it. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, the, the, the friends, the, the, those that they gathered together with, they lifted their voices together to God. They all lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? He's quoting Psalm 2. They're quoting Psalm 2 here. And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So let's understand this prayer and let's see all that we can and, and meditate on all the truth and the wisdom and the instruction and the conviction that's in this text. The first thing they begin with, out of the gate, they've returned to their friends and they say together, they lift their voices together, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. That phrase, that phrase, it's one word in the Greek language, it means master. It's a confession and it's an indictment. It's a confession of their hearts, their attitudes, their dispositions before God, and it's also an indictment against the religious leaders. So first, it's a confession. It's a confession. You are great, God, and we are small. You are infinite, and we are finite. You have the answers, and we don't. This is the banner over their life. This is the condition, the attitude, the disposition of their heart and their lives. You, God, sovereign Lord, you are sovereign, you are in control, you know all things, you are powerful, you are in authority, you are master. That's what that means. We are servants. You are the author and we are the script. You are the creator and we are the created. That's what they're saying. And it's affirmed by what they follow with. Three verbs. He made, he said, and he determines. In the text it says pre predestined, which means to decree or determine. You made sovereign Lord. You said or revealed sovereign Lord. And you determined. You are the maker of heaven and earth. And the sea and everything in them. You are, you are the creator and we are the created. Everything that exists, exists because of you. There would be nothing if it were not from you. You are the maker. And then it says, he said from the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, you revealed. He's the revealer of truth from before time. He is the author of truth and the revealer of truth. And that's what he's done and is doing through his word. And then later down in verse 28, 
and determined or predestined or decreed all things. You are the author, the maker, the master. You are the revealer. You are the determiner of all things. Now, why do they start their prayer this way? Why do they begin sovereign Lord this way? Well, certainly we would point to that. This is how Jesus taught us, taught them to pray. Hallowed be your name. That's how he taught the disciples to pray, to begin with the greatness of God and the smallness of man. They have a right perspective on God. They have the right perspective on God. His greatness is supreme in their minds and their smallness. They see him as great and themselves as small. What they're doing here is offering a comprehensive confession about who God is and who they are. We wouldn't exist if it were not for you. Everything that we have is by your hands. Everything that we know is by your wisdom. Everything that has happened in our lives is by your determination. We trust you. We, are, we bow before you. We yield our lives to you. So it's a confession, but it's also an indictment. It's an indictment against the religious leaders. It, this, is, this is amazing here. The, the people who had who should have had a high view of God and a low view of themselves are the ones who have studied and memorized his word, the religious leaders. They should have had the, this perspective that God is infinite and he can act when and where and how he wants and he can tell us what he wants us to do at any point in any time. And oh my goodness, look, he said in the prophets, he said in the sun, he said in the signs and wonders, He's revealed through the disciples, and he's revealed through further signs and wonders. This lame man standing before us, this is the work of God. Instead, what is their response? Who did this? How are you doing this? All the evidence in the world is saying it's clearly an act of God and his anointed, his Messiah. And they cannot, they think their judgment outweighs God's authority. Their judgment exceeds his wisdom, his ability to act. So the people that should have had a high view of God and a low view of themselves, they don't. But the people who are uneducated, uncommon, who are low, recognize that he is high. They have a proper perspective, and this is an indictment. How do we know this is an indictment? That, they, that these disciples, apostles, have a high view of, of God and a low view of themselves, and that these religious leaders have a high view of their own judgment, their own authority, their own position, and a low view of God and his activity. How do we know that? By what they quote from, again, the Old Testament. From Psalm chapter 2. And what do they say in Psalm chapter 2? They quote Psalm 2, Psalm 2 reads, why do the nations rage? If you look in Psalm 2, there's a little footnote. It says Gentiles. And, and here they, they translate it that way. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? And what's the psalmist's answer in Psalm 2? The psalmist says, the kings, because the kings of the earth set or appoint themselves. They set themselves. They appoint themselves. They judge themselves as kings and rulers of the earth. And the rulers were gathered together and they do so against the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Messiah. Now, here's what's fascinating. Up to this point, traditionally devout religious Jews would have translated Psalm 2 as primarily referring to all the other nations. All the other nations stand against God. Gentiles, nations, they all lift their fists. They all appoint themselves. They all set themselves as king. All the other nations act as rebels against God. All the other nations don't accept God's activity and rule and authority and reign. All the other nations stand against his anointed and his Messiah. But what do the apostles and the disciples pray in the text? In the text it says, For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. They see the anointed that's talked about in Psalm 2 as Jesus. The Messiah that's talked about in Psalm 2 as Jesus. Truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. Gentiles. 
What does it say at the end of that verse? And the peoples of Israel. In other words, both king and commoner are set against God. Both Gentile and Jew are set against God. All stand against the authority, the rule, and the reign, and the work of God and His Messiah, Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are born in this condition. Psalm 2 is an amazing text that stands almost in the middle of the Bible that helps us understand the ramifications, the outworking of Genesis chapter 3. Of distrusting God, of Adam and Eve walking into the garden and saying, that's it? That's all you're going to give us? You've got to be holding something back, of believing the lie that God was hiding something from them, of believing the lie that God is not for them and good and good enough and giving them everything. That lie, they believe, they distrust God, they trust their own wisdom, they trust themselves, and it fractures and fragments everything. In Genesis chapter 3, the world now is broken and dead. We are alienated from God, alienated from within, alienated from one another. And what's the result? It's instant fighting and fracturing. And now every individual human being is born with the attitude and the disposition that I am king of my own life. I am the author. I am the independent, autonomous author and ruler of my own life. And I submit to no one. Now imagine a full planet, seven billion full of little individual autonomous kings. Why do the nations rage, God? Because the kings of the earth set themselves up. Every single person is attempting to lift their fist against God and determine their own truth and their own way and their own authority. And as soon as you cross one, you have fighting and fraction and factions. The disciples are acknowledging here that we acknowledge that you are king and we are not. And these religious leaders think that they are king. But they're not. They don't see it, God. They don't see it, Sovereign Lord. They don't understand it, Sovereign Lord. They don't understand that they are not king and that you are. They're blind to it. They're distorted. They're deceived. They're operating upside down in this world. What are we seeing and hearing here in their prayer? The disciples get it. The disciples get the gospel, that the gospel is the only thing that can turn us who are upside down right side up, that the gospel is the only thing that gives us this right perspective, that we are not king, that he is. And they're acknowledging that these religious leaders don't see it. The disciples recognize and humbly admit their weakness and their frailty and God's infinite power and infinite authority. And they also acknowledge and they, they, they point out that these religious leaders refuse to admit their inability. They refuse to admit their weakness and frailty and therefore God's infinite power, authority, and ability. This is how it is serving as an, a, an indictment. And the disciples get it. They get the good news of the gospel. That God is infinite and that they desperately need him to invade. They desperately need him. They live at the hand of the sovereign Lord. They live at his will. They live to feed and, 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 and breathe and operate according to his rule and his authority. And these religious leaders don't get it. They wrongly assume that they are sovereign, that they know best, that they are the ultimate authority. So what's the answer? Well, what's the answer according to Psalm 2? The text, the verses that they don't quote. That the end of Psalm 2, verse 10, 11, and 12, it says this. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be Warned, O rulers of the earth, those of you who think that you are your own autonomous, independent ruler of your own life, serve the Lord with fear. Respect Him. Revere Him. And rejoice with trembling. And here it is. Kiss the Son. Kiss the Son. Capital S, Son. 
Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. What's the answer? It's bow before the true king. It's bend the knee, bow the head, submit before the true king. What does it mean to kiss the son? You've seen it maybe in movies and and read it in books where, where someone bows before the king. They kiss the hand of the king. Or maybe they kiss the signet ring of the king, which is to say, you are in authority and I'm not. You are king and I'm not. Bow, humble, submit, yield to the true king. This is the answer. This is the answer that Jesus gives in in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when he announces that the kingdom of God is at hand. You can't have a kingdom without a king. The king is here. And what's his first words? Repent. What's repent mean? Bow before the king. Yield yourself before the king. Recognize the true authority, the true maker, the true ruler, the true master of the universe, it's not you, it's Jesus. And as you bow, and what do we do if we're bowing before the king who we've tried to overthrow, who we have tried to exert a coup against, when we bow before him, it should be off with our heads, but instead, what does he finish Mark chapter 1 verse 15 with? Repent and believe the good news. It's not off with your head, it's off with mine. He didn't come to pierce us. He came to be pierced on our behalf. The disciples get it. And they're acknowledging and they're they're, they're confessing it. But they're also acknowledging these religious leaders don't. They're blind. They don't see this sovereign Lord. They don't submit and cry out sovereign Lord. And that leads us to their prayer. Their prayer in verse, verse 29 And it leads us to their first request. And that is, give us grace to speak boldly. Verse 29. And now, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your words with all boldness. We get it, Lord. We get you are king and we are not. We see it. You've opened our eyes to it. And we're so grateful for that grace that you've worked and acted in our hearts and our lives. But these don't get it yet. They don't see it. They don't understand it. So the first thing they say is, please, Lord, help us. Give us words. Grant us, which is grace us or give us words to continue to speak, it says, to continue to speak boldly. Remember the context. They've already been recognized as disciples, apostles who, te- who teach and, and speak boldly. And, the, and they were shocked by the boldness of the, of the apostles. And it says immediately after they, they, they were astonished by this, they recognized them as have, having been with Jesus. Those two things are connected. They, they're shocked by their boldness. It's clear they've been with Jesus. Why do those two things go together? Why are they shocked by their boldness and they immediately assume, presume, know that they've been with Jesus? Because everywhere through the Gospels, go back and read them. Every time Jesus teaches, it says over and over again that he was one who spoke with authority. And it shocked them. He spoke with authority. He owned the word. The word, it was not, it was not simply that he spoke. It was, it, was, it was not simply that he spoke the scriptures. They were, were shocked that he would have such knowledge of the scriptures. Also like these, these disciples who didn't go through formal education like others. That, that was shocking in and of itself. But they were shocked because he spoke as though he owned the words. As though they belonged to him. As though they were his words. God's word was his word. That, that he, he possessed them, that they, that, that they were his to convey. And so that he spoke with authority. And it says over and over again, we have all the verses, a lot of verses up here on the screen. Mark 1, 22, 6, 2, Matthew 7, 28, 13, 40, 54, John 7. That he, that he spoke and he spoke with authority and it, it astonished the religious leaders. So that's what's happened here. It's clear they're speaking just like him. And so when, when Luke words uses that phrase, boldness, one way he means it is, is when they ask for boldness, they're asking for, for truth-laced, 
grace-fueled, spirit-filled words, in other words, just like Jesus. Help us speak, Lord. We don't have the words or the wisdom or the grace or the patience or the truth or, 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 the, or the wisdom of the Spirit. We don't have these things unless you speak to us. We need desperately you to give us grace and patience to speak. We need you to give us the, the words, the truth, the wisdom, and we need the Spirit to inform, the Spirit to illuminate. We need the Spirit to give us the power to enable us to do this. Please, Lord, give us these words that we desperately need to convey the gospel. And here's, I know this, my own life, your life, conversations I have regularly, you, I know what we wrestle with. We wrestle constantly with fear in sharing the, our faith with others, the gospel with others. We, we fear, I, I, what if I mess up? What if I don't have the words? We fear, what we fear, what if they ask me questions and I don't have the answers to them? Here's what happens at worst. At worst, they say, what about? And you say, I don't know. And you display gospel humility. You display that you are finite, that you are small, that you are weak, that you're not God. And you say, let's go study together, because I know who does. Let's study the word together. At worst, that's what happens. At best, you say, God, I don't have the words. Holy Spirit, give me the words. Grace-fueled, truth-laced, spirit-filled words, and he answers. And they hear. So what we fear, God provides. What they worry about, fear, ask, he provides. So let's ask rather than fear. Now, they move past just asking for words because boldness also means something else. It's not just give us the words, give us the clarity, give us the authority or the conviction. It's also give us boldness, also the way Luke uses it here, is also confidence and freedom. And I think that's extraordinary, I, and I think that's what they're, they're asking and, and they're saying here. Certainly give us the words. We don't have the words. Apart from you, we don't have the wisdom and the words and conviction and the confidence. But we also desperately need the freedom to do it. The freedom to do this. And I think this is also what they're asking here based on how Luke uses this word. Remember the context. Remember the context. These men are standing before the religious leaders that, that in the Gospels, these very same names of these very same religious leaders were the ones that found the innocent, sinless Savior condemned. They're the ones that found him guilty. They're the ones that accused him, that found him guilty, and they condemned him to death. The very same religious leaders, these apostles and disciples now stand before. But in this context, in the previous verses, where they should feel, Peter and John should feel all the fear in the world. They found Jesus, who is the innocent, sinless Savior, Guilty and condemned him to death. What about us? We're not him. They should feel all the fear in the world, but they don't. They should defend themselves. They should, you sh we should be reading about them saying, yeah, yeah, but, 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 but we, but we, we, we did we this. But they don't. They defend Jesus. They should be worried about their circumstances. What's going to happen to us? What if we lose? What if, we, what, do we, what if they condemn us? What if we lose our lives? For us, what if we lose that friend? What if we lose that family member in sharing the gospel? What if? What if? But they're not worried about their circumstances. They're not concerned about them. Their preeminent priority concern. Is the name of Jesus being heard and blind people seeing for the first time the good news of the gospel? They weren't concerned with the, with, with the opinions of the religious leaders. They weren't even concerned with their own opinions. All they were concerned about was the opinion of God. How does a person have that kind of boldness, that kind of freedom, the word that they're free, they're unhinged, they're unshackled from the approval of man. 
They're unshackled from achievement, whether they hear or don't hear. Success. They're, they're unshackled. They're, they're free. This is true, liberating freedom we're seeing in this text of these apostles and disciples and what they're praying for more of. How? How is it that they could speak so freely and not worry what other people think of them? How is it that they could speak so freely and not worry about success or failure? How is it they could speak so freely and not worry about them, their own opinions of themselves? Because they had the smile of God in Jesus Christ. They had the approval and the favor and the arms wrapped around them of God. They are sons and daughters, and that's the only identity that matters. That's the only achievement that matters. That's the only approval that matters. Don't you see the true, liberating, life-changing, gospel-transformed identity and freedom that these disciples have? No wonder they pray for more of that. Oh God, give us more of Give us a taste of this. This is what they're asking for and praying for in this moment. They're speaking with shocking freedom. They have the smile and the security of God, and that's enough for them. Is that enough for you? Is that enough for me? Don't you see what, what this rock-solid anchor of the soul, as Hebrew says, creates? The gospel, don't you see what it does to a person, how it changes a person? We see glimmers and glimpses and inklings of it in this text of these disciples they're not fearful or anxious. They're at complete peace. They're not worried or over-concerned. They're, they're, they're calm. They're not arrogant. They're humble. They're not afraid. They're fearless. They weren't concerned with themselves. They were concerned with others. They weren't consumers in this moment. They're worried about contributing they're worried about pouring out. They're worried, they're concerned and praying, God, do more. Do more. Save more. Open more eyes. Open, give us more boldness so that we can proclaim even more. This is extraordinary. And that leads us to the last point. Verse 30. We see the first half of their request is, God, see the threats. Give us boldness. Freedom. And then we see the last part of their request. And we learn the very heart of the disciples, the very heart of the, the apostles, the very heart of the prayer, the very heart of gospel transformation. They ask God to act while you act. They prayed for the words 100%. They asked for the words. They asked for the clarity. They asked for the conviction. They asked for the freedom. But the question that we have to ask is why? Why did they ask for the, the words to speak? Why did they ask for the clarity to speak? Why did they ask for more freedom to speak into the face of the threats that they were standing before? Why? Because these religious leaders, their Jewish peers, their persecutors, the world for that matter, is blind to the truth and the good news of the gospel, to the freedom that they are experiencing, walking in and praying for more of. The world, the friends, family, peers, religious leaders, persecutors are blind to this good news. And they're begging God to work through them to open eyes. And here in verse 29 and 30, 30 particularly, we see the very heart. How, how do we know this is their heart? That, that they are longing for gospel transformation, for the, for the blind eyes to be opened, for the, for the closed hearts to be softened, the hardened hearts to be softened, for, the, for, their, for these religious leaders and their Jewish peers to, to be rescued and saved. It's in the words in verse 29 and 30. It says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant. 
What's amazing is the first thing they do, in verse 29, it says, you look on the threats. When it says look on the threats, it means means heed or, or be conscious of, be aware of, look, see. Look, you look to the threats. See the threats that we're facing. What's amazing is what they don't pray. They don't say, get us out of the threats. They don't say, remove the threats from us or remove us from the threats. Instead, they say, sovereign Lord, maker of all, creator of everything, ruler over everything. Would you pay attention to this? If you see it, we don't have to. If you see it, if you give your heed, your attention, then we don't have to. If you're on the throne, then we don't have to be. It's another confession, Lord. You handle the circumstances. Elizabeth Elliot, famous quote, love the quote. She says, the secret is not us in a different set of circumstances. The secret is Christ in us. And that's what they're acknowledging here. You see the threats. Isn't this how, this is not how we often pray, is it? Now, it's not wrong for us to pray for our circumstances, but that's not the priority concern of their lives. We don't often pray this way. We say, remove the threat or remove me from the threat. That's not how they're praying. They're trusting God. They're saying, you look on the cir- our circumstances, you look on the threats, and please give us strength in the face of the threat. Please give us boldness, freedom, the words to speak in the face of the threat. They're not saying remove it. They're saying help us walk into it even further. Help us live with confidence and power and assurance in the midst of the tornado, in the midst of the the storm, in the midst of the threat. I think that's one way this is indicating their concern is not about themselves, but it's about those that they're encountering. But I think the, the, the words make it clear. The second and more important aspect of what makes this clear, they're concerned with, with the religious leaders and their Jewish peers, their peers and their persecutors, is verse 30, and it says, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and while you perform signs and wonders in the name of your servant, Jesus. Again, it's what they don't pray that is instructive here. As one commentator put it, they don't pray for a ministry of vengeance. They pray for a ministry of mercy. In other words, what they are not praying in this moment is, did you see what they did to us? Did you see how they spoke to us? God of heaven, pour out your fire on them. That's not how they prayed. That's not what these words say. Instead, what they're praying for is God of heaven, fan the flame of the fire within us to speak with courage and boldness and conviction and clarity so that you might pour out mercy on them, so that you might pour out your grace on them, so that they might hear, so that they might be saved, so that they might repent, so that they might be redeemed. This is the heart of their prayer. This is what they're praying for. They're not praying for a ministry of vengeance. They're praying for a ministry of mercy. It's extraordinary. And we have to ask, are our hearts melted and moved in this same way for our friends and family and peers and co-workers and even our enemies to see the good news of the gospel? In such a way that God, humble us, use us, give us the words and the wisdom and the boldness and the freedom and the disconcern over over what they might think and over what they might say and what they might, their approval of us. Give us this holy freedom to speak clearly and why, not so we can be proved right, but so that they can be saved. Are our hearts melted and moved in this same way? For our peers and even our persecutors. What's amazing is that they asked and God answered. And it's one of the few times in the scripture where we see a prayer offered and we get to see the answer immediately. 
Immediately in the text, it says, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What is going on here in this moment? Two things. God is both affirming their prayer and answering their prayer. He is affirming their prayer. When we look through the Old Testament, when we look through the Scriptures, when, when, the, when the earth shakes... It's a sign that God is present among them, that God is there. Exodus chapter 19, verse 18, when he descended on Mount Sinai, it says the whole earth trembled. The whole mountain and the whole earth trembled. It was an indicator that God was present, that he was in and amongst his people. In Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has the grand, glorious vision of God in the temple and his, and his glory is filling the temple. And, and it says, in the, and the, the seraphim spoke. It says, the foundations of the temple trembled. They shook. What's happening here? They're praying the very heart of God. They're praying the very word of God, the very heart of God. And they're feeling the reverberations of that heart of God. They are acknowledging we are sinners and you are our Savior. You are sovereign Lord and we are not. We are small and you are great. And, and life is only found in you, not in us. We desperately need you. And oh God, there are others that don't see it yet. We want them to see it. They're praying the very heart of God and the earth shakes. He's affirming their prayer. He's saying, yes, I'm with you. Let's do it. I'm among you. This is the, the, the constant evidence through the scriptures. When the earth shakes, it's a sign that God is there, present. And what's amazing in this affirmation that God is hearing their prayer, it's remarkable, and there's so much instructive wisdom for us in this. They're praying... God, see our persecutors and redeem them for your glory and for your name. We're in chapter 4. In five chapters, there's going to be a man named, the other, only other time we see this word threat, there's going to be a man named Saul of Tarsus, and he's breathing out murderous threats against the way, the Christians. Instead of crushing him, Jesus sees the persecution. He sees the threats. And he comes to Paul and he humbles him and he rescues and redeems him and sends him as the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Their prayer is answered. Their prayer is answered in the immediate context. It's answered five chapters later. It's remarkable. He is affirming their prayer. But he also is answering their prayer in the immediate context. It says, And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The very thing they prayed for is provided. Give us words to speak with boldness. And they spoke with boldness. Fill us with the power and the conviction and the freedom. And he filled them with the Spirit and the power and the conviction and the freedom. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? He is constantly saying, stop looking at yourself. Look to Jesus. Your identity is not in your approval, your success, or your failure, or your stuff, or your possessions. Your identity is in Jesus. Rest in your identity in Jesus and then live. Speak out of that. The Spirit is giving them the answer to their prayers. Now we need to understand what's happened here in this moment. In this moment, in shaking this place, he has given them an unshakable faith that goes on to shake the world. And we need to understand that this isn't the first time the earth shook. That this shaking can't happen if there weren't a previous shaking. See, in Matthew chapter 27, we're told that God shook the earth in order to give you and I this unshakable power, this unshakable righteousness, this unshakable freedom, and this unshakable faith. In Matthew 27, 51, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook. 
and the rocks were split. In verse 54, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, or confessed, truly, this was the Son of God. A man who, whose previous confession was, I'm sufficient in myself, I am God, now confesses, I'm not God, Jesus is God, is sovereign Lord. This is remarkable. And in shaking the centurion and showing us this confession and shaking the, the, the earth at the, at the cross, it turns this centurion's confession from himself to Jesus. Has that shaken occurred in your life? Has that shaking occurred in your life? where you have turned from all about you and your confession is really you and that you can handle it and I can live on my own and stand on my own two feet and I'm my own autonomous ruler and independent Lord and King and author and all of those things to I am not, but he is. I must decrease, but he must increase. To, to he is God. If so, then you and I have received an unshakable faith with the power to shake the world. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. They can arrest the disciples, but they cannot arrest the gospel. We can, we can die, but the, but the gospel does not. We have an unshakable faith and an unshakable kingdom. Now, you, you say, okay, well, what confidence do I have that that's true? What confidence do I have that I have that power? That that power resides within me? That the kingdom that is unshakable is now mine? That I've received this unshakable faith that shakes the world? What, how do I know that I've received this unshakable righteousness that, that is really true? Because there was another great day, another great shaking. In Matthew chapter 28, in Matthew 28, 1 to 4, it says, Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, a great seismos, a great shaking. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. But the, and then verse 5, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, do not tremble, do not shake, do not fear. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said, come and see the place where he lay. And what did they see? An empty tomb. Don't you see that we can't have Acts 4 shaking without Matthew 28 empty tomb shaking. And we can't have Matthew 28 empty tomb shaking if we don't have Matthew 27, sovereign Lord of the universe, being shaken on our behalf. Being crushed and pierced so that we could walk free with an unshakable faith and freedom. So what, what will you take away this week? What will you begin to push past the head down to the level of the heart and then live this week? One thing that we can begin to do is we can pray this text. We can pray the word. So let's do that together right now. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, may that be the banner over our lives. May that be the headline of our words. May that be the experience our spouses have of our lives, our coworkers have of our lives, our children have of our lives. That you are infinite and sovereign and we are small and finite. That you are king and we are not. That you are master and we are servant. That you are creator and we are created. Sovereign Lord. Thank you for revealing that truth, that good news, that grace to us. For humbling us and helping us recognize who you really are and in light of that, who we really are. Lord, but our friends, our family, our peers, our persecutors don't see it. 
They don't see this good news. They're blind to it. They're deceived by it. By the little g-god of this world, Paul says in Corinthians. Their, their eyes are blinded from seeing the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Lord, give us the words. Give us the confidence. Give us the clarity. Give us the conviction. Give us the freedom to speak your grace and your truth into their lives. And it will take that. Lord, we are so fearful and worried about what other people think of us. We are so fearful and worried about losing that relationship because we speak the good news of the gospel into their lives. Help us see that relationship will be lost for eternity if we don't. Help us see. Help us rest. Help us find our identity in you and you alone. And in resting, in your smile and in your security, Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, act. Do what you long to do and rescue the hearts of sons and daughters, calling them home. Arms wide open, calling prodigals back to yourself. May we not be the older brother in the story. May we be running to our prodigal brothers and sisters with the good news of the gospel and your great love. Lord, call them home. You act. We'll do the study. We'll do the reading. We'll, do the, we'll, we'll, we'll share the stories. We have such unbelievable gospel stories each one of us will we'll share them, you act. We trust you to save. We trust you to change. We trust you to transform. We are evidence of that. We could not rescue ourselves were it not for you. Sovereign Lord, give us the words, give us the boldness, and you act. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>